Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, let me invite you to open me to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Romans 16, beginning with verse 17 here in just a moment. Lord willing, next week will be the last sermon in our two and a half year series in the book of Romans. Uh, If you're a visitor with us, we want to invite you to join us. Uh, as we complete this, this journey through the book of Romans, we are coming to the end of, of that which could be described uh, the, one of the most important letters written in the history of the world, Paul's letter to the Romans. This letter, this book that we began two and a half years ago, we chose for a reason in this moment in the life of our church. I remember sitting in an elder meeting with uh, Austin at the time was serving as one of our elders and talking about what is it that we need as a church, as a, a group of people worshiping God here in St. Rose. And one of the things that, that led us to work through this book in particular was this need that we become not just God people in general, but gospel people. Uh, we want the church members of St. Rose Community Church not just to be spiritual people or people who, who talk about God in general, but, but people who talk about God as He has revealed Himself. The God of the Bible, the God who is there, the God who has revealed the gospel. We don't want to be just God people in general. We want to be gospel people. We want to be people of what God has said. And that what He has said is a message that is called the gospel. That there is a God who is good and holy and perfect, who created the world good and perfect, but that man sinned. That man is not good and perfect, and thus separation exists between man and God, only to be fixed, only to be reconciled by Jesus. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The one who lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve to die and rose again on the third day. We, we are not just theistic here at this church, believing there is a God. We believe that there is a God who has spoken and who became flesh, and who died on the cross for our sins. We, we want to be gospel people. And the book of Romans has articulated the gospel most thoroughly uh, compared to any other book of the Bible. This is the most detailed sort of full picture package of what God has done. So we've given ourselves to it for two and a half years, studying it, cherishing it, worshiping over it, and becoming gospel people. And over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is the end of a letter. Uh, We've seen Paul sort of concluding his uh, masterpiece of theology by, by calling out people whom he knew in Rome, greeting them by name. And we've looked at how the gospel is not just things to be believed, it's a message that brings people together. Uh, people who are new in Christ. They, God brings these people together in local churches and fellowships. So we've been looking at how Paul talks to them as God's people. But now we come to this moment in verse 17, and it's almost as if Paul's writing the end of the letter, and then he says, oh, 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 wait a minute, I forgot something. (laughs) It's almost as if there's like an important PS moment, and and I envision as he's writing this, I envision like how a parent would write a letter or a note or a text to a child who's going to travel. You know, you've talked about all these things, and then there's, don't forget to buckle your seatbelt. Don't speed. It's supposed to be icy. 
don't text and drive. <laughs> I, I'd imagine, you know, uh, that, that there's this, you know, when you're saying goodbye to a child or something, there's all these things you want them to remember, important things that maybe you forgot to say earlier. And, and here, I feel like Paul in verse 17 is very much doing this. Oh, don't, don't forget this. He concludes the letter with commands for both the church in Rome and I believe every church following, including this one. So, so let's read and uh, let's pray for God to grant us understanding of this text. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and uh, Sospiter, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasure, and our brother Cortus, greet you. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to you right now, and I, I just ask that you would please help me to have clarity of thinking God, help me to explain true things from your word in ways that can be understood and applied. I pray for the miracle that you work when you speak through your scripture and it is heard, understood, and applied to the heart, God. as a miracle that no one in this room can take credit for. It is a work of you that we rely upon, that I rely upon. And so, Father, we pray as important as this text is, as important as this warning is, may it not fall on deaf or distracted ears. But Father, would you use this word as the living and active word that it is? Would you use it to convict, to stir up to worship, to encourage, to persevere, to do countless number of things in this room at this moment by the truth that is understood by your grace, Father. So, Father, we pray all these things would this moment be a moment of worship for all of us as we consider your word by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Now, Paul's used this language already several times. I appeal to you. It means to urge or to implore or to exhort. It's a marker that says, what I'm about to say is very important. I, I, I beg of you, I plead with you, listen to this. So I appeal to you, brothers, and what follows in verse 17 are two commands in the sentence. Watch out 
and avoid them. Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, what Paul has done for 16 chapters is that he has articulated and he has rejoiced over what is true. He has explained that which is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ and all the doctrines that interweave themselves with that truth. He's celebrated. But now, as he's ending the letter, what he wants to do is to warn that not everybody speaks truth. That, that there will come people who teach falsehood. That, that you need to know the truth so deeply because there will be people who preach falsely. Now, Paul does not address particular false teachers here or particular false teaching like he does in other letters. Sometimes he calls them out by name. Sometimes he calls out very specific belief systems. Rather, he's offering a more general warning as if, as if he doesn't really know that there's something happening in Rome right now, but he knows because of what he knows about the world and about sin and about uh, what's been happening since the beginning, it's going to happen. People are going to teach falsely to the people. They will hear false teaching. This leads us to truth number one out of five about false teaching that we see in this, in this passage. Truth number one, false teaching is an ever-present danger. He can offer a general warning and a general command to watch out always because there is always the danger of false teaching. Foundational to Christianity is the belief that truth is objective, not relative. Foundational to Christianity is the, truth, is the belief that truth is objective, not relative, because God is real, not imaginative. Because God actually exists, and he actually has something to say. In verse 17, Paul references what is called the doctrine or the teaching. And he uses this language purposefully throughout his letter. For Paul and for all Christians, there is a doctrinal standard. There is a body of truth claims that we must believe and submit ourselves to to be Christian. And so Paul refers to doctrine or the body of truth that we should believe in several ways throughout his letters. I mean, we learn from the very beginning of the letter that Paul understands himself to be set apart to teach a message that is of God or from God. Romans 1.1, this is how he introduces himself. Paul, a servant of Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That is the good news message of God. And we learn from, I mean, very early in the book that Paul understands this message not to be a brand new thing, but a promised thing, even in the holy writings before Paul was born. Romans 1 2. This gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. There's a message that a holy God has that has been preserved in holy writings according to the plan of God. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 6 says this, Thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The Christian person commits themselves from the heart to a standard of teaching preserved in holy writings according to the sovereign plan of a holy God. And these writings inform us, instruct us, and encourage us to keep persevering in what we know of God. Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So because God is real, and because he knows all truth, and because he is gracious, he has chosen to reveal truth to his children. True things. The Bible contains within it this message or body of teaching that we believe and submit to as God's creatures, and he as the revealer of all true things. So what is false teaching? Well, false teaching is anything that contradicts, adds to, takes away, or twists what God has said to be true. So, so Paul warns against any person or any teaching that divides God's people, and the way he words it, anybody who teaches contrary to what has been taught, contrary to the teaching you have received, he says in verse 17. And, and as I'm considering this passage this week, I was a little overwhelmed uh, this morning with how important this warning really is for every single person in this room. There are many pastors that would seek to entertain you with jokes and stories and thus send you into a raging war in the world for you to be spiritually slaughtered because you've not been equipped with the sword of God's word. I refuse to be one of them. We are in a war. We are in a war that is not physical, it is spiritual. And the fight is not just over what you do. It is not just that you be a morally better person. The fight is over what you think. The fight is over what you believe. The fight is over what is true and what is not true. The war between good and evil, in essence, is the war between what is false and what is true. Later in verse 20, Paul references Satan for the first time in the whole letter because he understands Satan himself to be the father of lies and, and falsehood has been his game from the beginning. Satan led Adam and Eve to rebellion by first questioning, did God really say that? Think about it. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? First of all, God did not say you cannot eat of any tree of the garden. He said you can't eat of one tree in the garden. Even in his question, He's not only questioning did God say it, but he's twisting the question so you assume he said something different. Satan's first move was to twist and to put into question words God said, and Adam and Eve took the bait. 
and brought on themselves and on every human being that followed the curse of a sin nature which prefers lie rather than truth. You and I inherited a disposition to prefer lies over truth. If you think back to Romans chapter 1, as Paul unpacks what sin really is and what we really are by nature as sinners, the essence of it is a suppression of truth and an exchange of God for a lie. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things have been made. So, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... So claiming to be the originators of truth rather than submitters to or receivers of truth, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring the body among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 1, 18 through 25 is the story of the world. <laughs> it is our story, and it is most certainly the story of our culture in modern day America, particularly. I mean, right now, we live in a culture where the dominant worldview is that we should reject the very phrase, false teaching. The, mo the, the majority worldview, if you meet somebody at the market, <laughs> if you meet somebody at the restaurant, most people think this way, that the, abs the only absolutely false teaching is to claim that there is a such thing as a false teaching. The morally right thing, according to the Western world, is to affirm that everybody can have their own version of truth as long as they're willing to accept that it's okay for somebody else to have their own version of truth. Truth has no bearing on reality, and it need not as long as it serves your desires. In the name of tolerance, our cultural moment will not tolerate, therefore, biblical Christianity. <laughs> in the name of tolerance, our culture, increasingly so, in America specifically, cannot tolerate the words of Jesus himself, who said in John 14, 6, my three-year-old Owen can quote this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And that belief will get my son bullied in middle school when he grows up. The chief sin of our culture is to label any particular act a sin. The thought that, that deserves most judgment is to say that judgment is coming. Thus Paul appeals to you in this room, watch out. 
Watch out. Watch carefully what you believe and what you are taught. Not only do you have a sin nature that is predisposed to reject God and to embrace the lie, you are immersed in a world that cherishes the lie. And according to Paul, it will not always be so easily recognizable. False teaching that is obvious is not that dangerous. False teachings are not always blatantly wrong or blatantly against the existence or character of God. Uh, Often false teachings simply add a little bit or take away a little bit or twist a little bit of what God's word says and thus what you get is not God as he is but God as you want him to be. Therefore, what you get is not a God whom you are serving. What you get is a little version of yourself that you would like to worship rather than surrender to. So often, false teachings and their teachers are appealing. Romans 16, verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Truth number two, false teaching is enticing. Notice how how the false teacher is described in uh, verse 18. They don't serve the Lord. So the motivation is not to serve a Lord that is over them and submit to it. So what's the motivation? If you're not submitting yourself to a Lord that is over you, who do you serve? Well, Paul creates a contrast. They don't serve the Lord, but they serve their own appetites or literally their own bellies. They serve themselves. They, they are able to establish their own rules to fulfill their own sinful desires. This is their motivation, and at many times, this is the very nature of false teaching. False teachers deceive with teaching through smooth talk and flattery. In other words, they sound nice, and they make it about you. False teachings often appeal to some sinful desire that we already have, and it entices us like the fruit in Eve's eyes. It, it is, is pleasing. Paul warns about this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and he just drops like this bomb of a charge on Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So that's just building up to the charge, okay? (laughs) Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse three, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is our reality, (laughs) I mean, the time has come, according to this text. We live in a society full of people who don't want to reject that there's a God altogether. They want to be spiritual, but they just want God to say what they want him to say and act as they want him to act. So they end up making a version of God that looks more like them than God. So Christian, be warned. Let me just take a moment to pastorally plead with you for a second 
not every teacher on Facebook or YouTube speaking in the name of Christ is speaking on behalf of Christ. There are many churches and many church leaders who stand up every week to preach and they have the Bible in their hand, but they are not submitted under the Bible they hold. Just because there's a, a cross on the steeple of the church does not mean that that church is submitted to the God of that cross. Be warned. Preachers that use Christ's name may just be committing blasphemy, which is to use the Lord's name in vain or emptiness. And most of the time, they'll be really good at it. And they'll be very appealing. And what they are promising will sound very enticing. Watch out. I love what, what Paul advocates for in, in verse 19. It's not just the negative of the watch out, but it's the positive. There's, a, there's something you should be striving for as a Christian. In verse 19 it says, uh, For your obedience is known to all, I, I, I so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Truth number three, we must develop doctrinal discernment. I love this because Paul rejoices over their obedience. Obedience is a good thing. Genuine desire to obey is a fantastic thing. It, it is a God-honoring thing. That is a wonderful thing. There, but there have been a lot of good, genuine Christians who've made statements like, I just want to obey the Lord, but I'm not all about that theology stuff. Or I'm just not wired to study the Bible very deeply. Or, or that's for academic people. Or that's for young people. Or fill in the blank. Uh, but, but do you see where Paul's going in verse 19? He's saying genuine desire to be obedient to the Lord Jesus is good. But what if you don't know doctrine well enough to know if you're being obedient or not? <laughs> you can genuinely want to obey a false command. And be in the wrong. So Paul hopes that what they have is not just obedience to obey, but, but wisdom to know what is good and innocence from what is evil. He is hoping for a, 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 that even his letter, as he's written it to him, would be a source of deepening wisdom as to what is good and what is bad. Wisdom is this combination of knowing what is true and being able to apply that truth in a variety of situations. He hopes that the gospel would take such deep root in their lives that they would have an ear for what is in step with the gospel message of Jesus and what is not. Like Jesus says, my sheep will hear my voice. And what, what Paul wants them to do is to immerse themselves in what is true so much that there's an alarm that goes off in their head when they hear what is false. May we be a church that builds up doctrinal discernment into ourselves, into one another, and into the next generation. Into our children. 
and children's children. This is part of our ministry to one another. Remember back in Romans chapter 15, he's summarizing um, the ministry he's called to and that they're called to, and this is what he says in Romans 15, 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So one of the things we do as a Christian community is help build doctrinal discernment into one another. Truth number four, doctrinal discernment is a community project. We, we do this together. Notice that the command of verse 17 is in the plural, and that again, Paul addresses the whole group with familial language. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. One of the many good gifts that God has given us in the church is that in the church we find a community of people who are filled with the Spirit of God and seeking to be faithful to what God has revealed in the Scriptures. And so we do not have to go off alone and figure things out by ourselves. The community of God creates for us like a safeguard against false teachings. If I begin to follow a false teacher, if I'm sharing stuff on Facebook by somebody who sounds good because I listened to a three-minute clip but somebody else knows that that elsewhere they've written a book that is straight up heresy i don't have to know that by myself there's somebody else who will come alongside me or if i begin to think a certain way or behave a certain way or if i begin to make a certain life decision and 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 if i'm thinking a certain way following a certain teacher trying to make a decision and no other spirit-filled christian in my biblically sound church thinks it's a good idea it's probably a bad idea If I'm the only one in Christianity that thinks this, (laughs) I'm not the smartest one in the room of 2,000 years of Christian history (laughs) and even in my own body of Christ. I have friends who are doctrinally sound who will warn me of my decision and give me reason for pause and that is God's grace to me and God's grace to you. Uh, there's a book called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethers. We read it as the uh, Men of the Word group in the summer, and this is what he says about reading the Bible. He says, none of us opens God's Word in a vacuum. We're complex individuals who all come to our Bibles with luggage carts of experiences and intuitions and beliefs and biases, and there's no such thing as a neutral reading of any book, especially one that, that's, that makes all these all-encompassing claims over our lives. It's imperative, therefore, that we approach Scripture alongside others in the context of a diverse community. Otherwise, our experiences will limit us, our preferences will govern us, and our biases will blind us. God has given us a community of faith that we might walk in sound doctrine. Notice how even Paul is not an isolated lone wolf in his ministry. This is the Apostle Paul, who, who Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, showed up and, and, and called him to a ministry. But Romans 16, verse 21, we find that even in the writing of Romans, Paul is not in a cave somewhere by himself, but he's in a room full of Bible-believing Christians. Romans 16, 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and, and Sospiter. I said in the last service that it took me a long time to get that Sospiter because I wanted to say Saucy Pater, like a country just mountain man or something. Saucy Pater, my kinsman. 
I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, our brother Cortus, greet you. Paul is not alone. He's surrounded by fellow workers of Christ. So much so, and I, I mean, I don't know if you realize this, but he's not even the one writing down the words. He's, he's in a room dictating this teaching, and Tertius is writing it down word for word. And apparently at this moment, he's like, all right, Tertius, go ahead. And, I mean, I guess you can introduce yourself. So Tertius stops and says, hey, I'm Tertius. I'm writing this thing. And then he just kind of like goes on for the <laughs> rest of the letter. And so, so he's like in community doing this thing. Even in writing the book of Romans. You realize this is part of the reason for our church's membership class. We have a, we have a six-week membership class at our church. And, um, and I've had a lot of conversations with pastors that say I'm crazy for slowing down the process on people joining our church. Because a lot of pastors want to streamline the process to get as many people in, as committed as they can be, as quickly as they can be. But when I look at the scriptures and I see things like, watch out! Or I see things like Acts chapter 20, pay careful attention to the flock that is among you. For it's the church for which Christ shed his blood, and fierce wolves will rise up among you. To me, it's the least we can do to take some time in this membership class to say, is the doctrine you're saying you believe in the same as our doctrine? And is our doctrine the same as your doctrine? And is it the same as the doctrine, the teaching? I would much rather slow down the process of growing our church and our church be filled with truly born-again believers who cherish the gospel than a bunch of people who like showing up on Sunday to hear some guy speak. I want born-again believers who know the gospel and will stand in the waves of life and false teaching. We live in a world where Protestants, Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons all say that they believe in Jesus and mean totally different things. So we must watch out and pay careful attention. We take doctrine seriously not because doctrinal discernment is just a hobby, but for Paul and for us, it's a matter of eternal consequence. Look at verse 20, and this will be the last place that we look this morning, Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Truth number five, God will have the last word. Throughout the Bible, Satan is portrayed as the father of lies. And the people who reject the gospel are referred to as children of Satan. Despite how nice they are or kind they are or religious they may look, if they're rejecting Jesus... And the fullness of the gospel, they're called fathers of the de- or children of the devil. John chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus says to the religious people rejecting Jesus, Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin if I tell the truth? Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. As early as Genesis 3, the war became between truth and lies. But there was, there was a promise that should strike encouragement and worship into the believer and fear into the unbeliever. And there was a promise in Genesis chapter 15, chapter 3, verse 15, that the serpent himself would be crushed by an offspring of Eve. That he would bruise this offspring's heel, but that Satan's head would be crushed by this offspring, by this someone who was coming. And the Bible's whole story leads us to believe that Jesus is that someone. That Jesus came to put Satan and his followers under his feet. That Jesus became a man and humbled himself to Satan's temptations and one by one in the wilderness as Satan twisted scripture in his attempts to get Jesus to sin against the Father, Jesus responded with appropriate quotations of scripture and did not fall to the temptation that Adam and Eve fell. That Jesus did not fall into the temptation of embracing lives like you and I have in our lives. Rather, he lived the life totally and fully committed to the truth, and then he died as if he did not. <laughs> he took the punishment for all liars who would repent and put faith in him. So that Paul can say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Though we embrace the lie, we may receive grace. He opened our eyes, gave us faith, forgave us of our trespasses, and set us on the path to truth and life in him. But the work is not done. We are in a moment right now, Christian, of warring against our enemy. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God we wage war every day against the lies around us and the lies in our own heads until the day where we that we know is coming where God has the last word it may seem like false teachers are having their way in the world, freely speaking as they please, but there's coming a day where they will have nothing else to say, and all falsehood will be brought into the light, and only truth will remain. There is coming a day where Satan will be crushed, not only 
under Christ's feet, but according to this passage, under our feet, that the only one standing on that day will be the people of truth. So we fight today's battles knowing that the war will be won. Knowing that at the end of the day, only the truth tellers and truth believers will be left standing. And that Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them would be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast was and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And one day with them out of the picture, we will live in God's renewed world where there will be no such thing as false teachers or false teachings. Imagine with me for a moment what it will be like when your mind no longer entertains lies and you live in a world where there are no enemies to advocate for lies. Where we all who trusted Jesus live and think and rejoice in truth eternally. No more anxiety. Because the lie that God is not in control will no longer exist. No more depression. Because the lie of hopelessness will no longer exist. Because hope will be fully realized. No more sin. Because the lie that that sin somehow brings more joy than fellowship with God will no longer be present. And no more Satan. Because he will be under the feet of the one true God Renewed creation will be a place of eternal rejoicing in truth. And we look forward to that day. But as we look forward to that day, we wage war in this day for our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers to embrace the truth rather than a lie. And we refuse to define love and tolerance as sitting idly by while people go to hell because we would hate to offend them with the truth of their destination. False teaching is an ever-present danger. It's enticing. So we must develop doctrinal discernment in a community project, but we do so knowing that God will have the last word. So so let me conclude now um, with just three questions. Three questions Um, to help you reflect and respond to this passage. Number one, what lies have you been entertaining in your life and in your head? What lies have you been entertaining in your life or your head? Lies about yourself? Lies about your situation? Lies about your sin? Lies about God. One of the ways that false teaching manifests itself, and I wish that I would have spent more time on this earlier, is in verse 17, the way that Paul words some of the false teachers is that they, they put in obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. One of the ways that false teaching pokes its head, not the only way, but one of the ways, is, is to convince you or to make you think 
that there is some obstacle standing between you and God that you must overcome to have fellowship with God. And that is totally antithetical to the gospel that Paul has just explained. Paul has said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And some false teachings try to teach you that there is condemnation that you must work for to get rid of so you can get to God. That is creating an obstacle between people and God that Jesus' blood has totally done away with. And that is to create a gospel that is about you and not about what God has done for you. Now this is true in in denominations, this is true in whole sects of of people that call themselves Christian, but this is also true in your quiet moments of your house where you are telling yourself that you're not worth it. That you're not worthy, that God would never listen to you, that you cannot truly have fellowship with God because of this sin or this thought or this whatever. And what that is is not, maybe not a false teacher coming from the outside, that's the false teacher whispering in your ear, false teaching that, that Jesus was not enough to bring you into fellowship with the Father. So what lies are you entertaining in your life and in your head? Number two, as you sort of pinpointed some of those, can you think of any scriptures in which God combats those lies with truth? Can you think of scriptures where God, you know God has said this, even though you're thinking this. This is what sanctification is. This is, this is how Christians battle things like anxiety and depression. We have this thought that's coming into our head, which we know is not true, and so we grab onto the sword of the word, which is true, and we go to town fighting for our minds to believe, or fighting for our hearts to catch up with what our minds believe about the scriptures. We, we use the scriptures to settle our wondering minds when they chase after lies rather than truth. That's how we fight day by day. As Christians. And number three, what steps can you take to develop doctrinal discernment? Uh, we said this is, happens in a community project. This happens through the scriptures. So what steps can you take to develop deeper doctrinal discernment where you're not tossed to and fro by any TV preacher? Maybe you need to join this church in covenant membership And do that class where you join yourself to other people and they know what you believe and you know what they believe and you hold one another accountable. Maybe you need to invite someone to read the Bible with you to talk once a week or once every other week so that you're not just in your own head constantly but you're uh, working through truth and lies with other spirit-filled people. Or maybe uh, you just don't even know if you're a Christian and you have a lot of questions but until now you've been too prideful or too scared to ask And you just need to set up a time to sit down with one of our pastors or with a church member to process and figure out what you believe to be true and what you you believe to be a lie. One thing that I have a really hard tolerating in people are the people that says, "Ah, it doesn't matter, we'll find out. If it's true that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, This is the most significant thing to nail down in your entire life. You cannot throw it away as something maybe you'll think about later in life. We are talking matters of eternity here. Not who's going to win the next basketball game or what the weather's going to be. We'll find out when it gets here. 
So may we be people who look into things of eternal consequence. So I urge you, if you're not a Christian, do not simply say you'll find out later. And lastly, you know, maybe you're a Christian who's just drifted, and the way for you to respond is just to recommit yourself to deeper gospel-centered community. You will not survive as a lone Christian. You need to make it a habit. As a matter of spiritual discipline, as a matter of your own survival, in a, war, a, a raging world, you need to make it a habit to be in deep community with people who will pray with you and will help you know the Bible. So let's take a moment and reflect, prepare our heart to respond in song as we think on these three questions. What, what lies have you been entertaining in your life? Can you think of any scriptures that combat those lies? What steps can you take to develop doctrinal discernment? Let's, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to respond now appropriately to your word. We pray that you would help us in this song that we will sing, uh, Speak, O Lord. We, we pray that you would help us to pray the words of this song, asking that you would, would ground us deep in the truths that have echoed down since the dawn of time. Make us a spiritually discerning people doctrinally discerning people. Help us to be a people who watch out for one another because you are a God who has spoken. And so Lord, we pray um, that not only would we reflect and repent if there need be of repentance, but Father, we pray that we would transition to that second song where we sing together in joy that on Christ the solid rock I stand and all other ground is sinking sand. So, Father, we love you and we thank you for that reality that you're a God who speaks truth and that we get to uh, hear it, believe it, rejoice over it for eternity. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.